I don't know why they call this a fast day. It always seems awfully slow to me. Maybe we ought to call it something a little different. It says you should afflict your soul. We should maybe call it affliction day instead of fast. <coughs> this may sound strange on the Day of Atonement, but I'd like us to turn back to Daniel. I assure you we'll tie together before we're done, or at least I hope so. Daniel 4. <coughs> Here's a chapter where dealing with Nebuchadnezzar who had had a dream. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Now what had happened to him or was about to happen or what he dreamed about was something he wanted all people to know about. So he addressed this to everybody, everyone it would reach. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has worked toward me. Nebuchadnezzar was a Gentile king. He didn't really know God. He knew of God through Daniel and through Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others. Uh, he was not converted by any means, but he did recognize that there was a most high God and that God had worked in his life, even though he was not a converted man. Notice what he says about him. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, every human king that has ever reigned has probably wanted his kingdom to last from generation to generation. He didn't want to see it destroyed during his life or the life of his sons, but wanted it to be a world-ruling empire if possible and to last forever and evermore. That's just the way men think. But Nebuchadnezzar somehow began to recognize the might and the power of Almighty God and wanted everyone to know about it. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I was just doing fine, he says. Things were going all right for me. I saw a dream which made me afraid. Now, this dream messed up his life. <clears throat> and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. So it was something that was very emotional to him. Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, everybody that was thought to have wisdom or knowledge or inside information or ability to interpret. Uh, all the intellectual, the scholarly, the smart, uh, the wizards even, were called in. And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known to me the interpretation thereof. The wisest men in the whole kingdom, the, he brought wise men, so-called, in from all over the world so that he might have the best counselors possible. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. So Daniel was his name to the Most High God, 
but he says his name was Belteshazzar according to my God. So even though he recognized the Most High God, he recognized that his kingdom would last forever and ever, he still had his own God. That's a sort of a perplexing situation, isn't it? How can you recognize that there is a one true Most High God who will reign forever and ever, and yet still have your own God? You would think that would be crazy. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? To see this and yet cling to something else. Doesn't make any sense. But then on the other hand, I've met a lot of people who recognize that there is a God in heaven, and yet they cling to their little idols of self, of materialism, of whatever idols they might have. In fact, I've talked to some of them right here in this room that are doing exactly, in that sense, what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, and which I have done myself. Now, isn't that ridiculous? That we recognize a Most High God, and yet we cling to other little gods. Maybe God put this in here for more reasons than just Nebuchadnezzar's understanding. You wouldn't think anybody would do this. And then we look in the mirror and, wow, even I do this. Okay, so according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? So, he, that's funny. Isn't that funny? It, to me it is. He, he, the name of my God, but in him is, I'll, I'll put the name of my Babylonian God on him, but he actually has the spirit of the real God. <clears throat> and before him I told the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, the master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no secret troubles you, tell me the vision of my dreams that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of my head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the middle of the earth, and the height was great. The tree grew and was strong. The height reached to heaven, and the sight to the end of the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, the fruit thereof much, now, we have to understand, and here's a good place, I think, to show it, that there is sometimes metaphor in Scripture, and you don't take everything said as absolute word-for-word uh, -word interpretation. Sometimes, now I believe in generally in a literal interpretation of Scripture, but there are times when God uses metaphor, and what you, can't, what you see you can't take absolutely literally as if it were the case. He talks about this tree that grew so high that you could see it on the ends of the earth. Well, the earth is not flat, it's round. And no matter how high a tree grows, you're not going to be able to see it clear around on the other side of the earth, are you? So it's figurative, it's metaphorical speech. And everyone was aware of this Babylonian kingdom obviously. And that's what it's talking about. So he will explain it <clears throat> in that way. That, that's an aside or a digression because some people get to the point they want to take every word absolutely literally and you simply cannot do that. And there are many, many examples to show it. 
And yet, on the other hand, the other ditch is to spiritualize everything away, and you certainly can't do that. Most things can be taken pretty literally. Anyway, the leaves were fair, the fruit much, and it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. So what he's seeing in this dream is something that takes care of everything, basically, right? I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, scatter his fruit, let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of its roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given to him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones. And here's the purpose. To the intent that the living, all man on earth, who see the Babylonian kingdom, may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets up over it the basest of men. So here was a world-ruling empire, the Babylonian empire, such as no one had ever seen before. It seemed to be there to supply the needs of everyone. They could eat from it. It had the fruit, the meat, everything there. It was like a governmental program of socialism to make sure that everyone has food and drink and everything that they need for life. So that everyone would look to it and think this is the greatest thing that ever was. And anything we need, it has it for us. There are those who have a vision of America like that. A socialist nation where the government provides everything for you and you have nothing to worry about. And we are a reincarnation of ancient Babylon. But now God sent this dream. And he said this dream's purpose is so that everyone may know that there is a God in heaven and he does as he pleases, and he rules in the kingdoms of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he chooses, and he does set over it the weakest, gnarliest, basest, immoral, lying, cheating, sniveling, selfish scoundrels that are on earth. I'm adding a little to that, but those are just synonyms for basest. Their further definition of basest. So as we look around at the nations of this world and those who lead them, we know from this scripture, it's an end time scripture too, that ruling those kingdoms are going to be the vilest, the basest, the most immoral of people on the earth. The greedy, the selfish, have climbed above others and clawed their way 
into leadership positions, and God has passed on it, overseen it, and in some cases it appears from this, he has even caused it. He has made sure that it happened. So when we look at our leadership today, Romans 13 notwithstanding, we are supposed to give due respect and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and so on. And yet we need also at the same time, <laughs> while giving them their due, <laughs> that they are ungodly, that they are sinful, and that they do not have the best pe interests of people in mind, but they want to rule and become rich and wealthy and powerful. Those are their goals, those are their aspirations, their desires, and the things they work toward. So this dream was given, and then it was interpreted, and Daniel was a little fearful in 19, verse 19. He says, this dream and the interpretation is to those that hate you, and the interpretation is toward them, not toward you. And then he gave the interpretation, uh, beginning in verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High. This is what God says, which has come upon my lord the king. So Daniel still called him my lord the king. He gave him a certain honor and respect for the office that he was in, but he gave higher regard to God most high. But he told him the truth. That they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times or seven years shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, your kingdom shall be sure to you after that you shall have known that the heavens do rule. Well, this whole exercise was to teach Nebuchadnezzar who's in charge and his kingdom would even be preserved while he crawled around out on the ground. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, and break off your sins through righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of your tranquility or of the peace that you were enjoying in your palace. So if you don't come to have righteousness, if you don't come to have mercy on the poor, then your peaceful reign will be over. All this came upon the king, king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Now, after this dream and after the interpretation, he walked around for 12 more months as king, and nothing happened. Sometimes God says what will happen, and then there's a period of time. A period of grace, a period of opportunity. He gave him a year to turn to righteousness and to take care of the poor in mercy. Apparently it didn't happen. He went on as if nothing had happened. God is pretty merciful. And I hope I remember to bring in a, an element of that toward the end of this. 
The king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? So he, for a year he walks around and he's walking out on his porch saying, I built this kingdom. This is a wonderful kingdom. I did it by my might and by my power. Do we think he's getting the message that the dream gave and that Daniel interpreted for him? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you to eat grass as oxen, and seven years shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. So at the end of 12 months, when he made a great proclamation of vanity and ego, God brought this to pass. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till the hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What are you up to? Nobody can question God. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned to me, and my counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. <clears throat> it's interesting that God would do that to a Gentile king. And I think part of the lesson that might be there, and I will not get into all the prophetic aspects of it, and that's not my purpose today. A lot of the re reason of it may be that God knew that this end time, the nations of Israel would be ruled over by a Babylonian-type government with a Babylonian-type kingdom, and that God would have to humble both the government and the people of this nation until we all come to recognize that he is God and that he is the Most High and he can do anything he wants and will. And though he gives us time to change, there comes a day when he says, this is it. And everything that he has said will happen if we don't repent and change will happen. God cannot be mocked. And he taught Nebuchadnezzar that he could not be mocked. Nebuchadnezzar tried to get that word out to the whole world. God included it in the Bible so that the whole world now might understand it. It is not long in which 
the kings of this earth are going to manage to put together a kingdom that they feel can rule the world, and it can be as great a tree as this one spoken of here, that it will feed the whole world, it will take care of the whole world, it will be a new world order, a new world kingdom, and it will have all the answers. And it cannot be abased. They believe that they are going to put together a kingdom that will last a thousand years in peace and happiness and joy. Do you think they can do it? Now, I want to go from there to 1 Corinthians. Here's Paul writing to the Corinthian church. They were essentially a Gentile church. There were some Jews among them who lived in the area who had become converted, but essentially a Gentile church in Corinth. And he said that he he gave who he was. Paul called to be an apostle through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. And then he addresses this to the Corinthians and says grace to them and so on, gives his introduction. Verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Emmanuel, as we use now, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. You have what you need. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord. Emmanuel. So he says, you have everything, you've been taught everything you need to be ready when Christ returns. Who shall also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to be blameless. All our sins removed. Now this day of atonement pictures those sins being removed through the sacrifice of Christ. The guilt is upon Satan, the devil, who tempts us to sin. The other goat. God is faithful, by whom you were called to the fellowship of his son, Emmanuel, our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. His desire in writing to them was that we come to the point we all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions, and yet you hear from time to time it's okay for one to speak this and another to speak that. Uh, I don't have to agree. Well, maybe we don't all agree on everything at any one given moment, but it certainly should be our goal and our purpose to get rid of any division in thought and to come to speak the same things so that we be perfectly joined together in mind and spirit, attitude, focus, and purpose. We need to come to that point. <clears throat> For it has been declared to me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you, so they had their problems. 
They were a church of God, but they had their problems. Just as every church of God is listed in second in Revelation two and three has its problems. Now some would claim to be of Paul or one of Apollos and one of Peter and one of Christ. Uh, they looked at different leaders. I, I don't know why, because those leaders were all speaking the same thing, but they, they had their favorites. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? <laughs> Simple question, but wasn't that way. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. I'm glad I didn't do it, because then you'd say, well, he's the one that baptized me. Have you ever noticed that a lot of times people say, well, that's the minister that baptized me. Does that make him special? Well, maybe to you, I suppose, a little bit, but... Who, who baptized you really is not all that important. It was, were you repentant, and were you forgiven, and did you come under the blood of Christ? That's what's important, not who actually authorized you to be baptized. In some cases, the minister authorized it and then had an assistant do the dirty work anyway, getting cold and muddy and wet and so on. But that isn't... I mean, it might make us feel close to somebody, but we need to be careful that we don't take that beyond that point. And some of them were. They were looking to those people, and Paul said, I'm glad I didn't even baptize you, because then that would make me special in your eyes. And What he's trying to get across here is we may love men, and some people may be more special to us than others, and that's okay. But the real point here is there's only one Christ. There's only one. Let's skip to verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So he was sent to preach, even though there are some today who say there shouldn't be any preaching. I keep getting back to that, but it keeps coming up here and there in the journal and other places uh, that we don't need preaching and we don't need preachers. But that's the way God works. Just, I mean, you run across it all the time. He says, I'm not here with the wisdom of men. I'm here to preach Christ, to tell about him, to tell about the things he did and what benefit it has for us. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved it is the power of God. It's how we're enabled. It's where we get our power is from Christ. The fact that he died so our sins could be forgiven, and now that he lives so that they can continue to be forgiven, and that he can resurrect us. So the power of God resides in that stake. For the preaching of the stake, or the cross, is to them that perish foolishness, but it's to us the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Isn't that basically what we just read in the book of Daniel, chapter 4? God is able to destroy the wisdom of this world. And those that think they're smart and prudent, he is able to take that away. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? God made a creation. Beautiful earth we live on. Beautiful universe we look out at. And the wisdom of this world is that there was nothing 
and suddenly there was a big blast, and when the pieces all came down, we had an earth with water and trees and uh, squirrels and, you know, everything that's here, just out of a big blast. Or that the orb was here and that slime began to get thicker in some places, and as the slime got thicker, it began to sort of ooze up onto the beach, and then out of the ooze came these things that became us. <laughs> this is really intelligent, isn't it? You know, some of the smartest people on earth came up with these theories. Why? Why can't you look at the earth and understand and comprehend a little bit of history and understand that there had to be a creator who made it all, that table right there in front of me, I don't think just sort of came up out of the tile on the floor, which came from somewhere. Somebody made it. Tables don't appear. They have to be made. Why do they do this? As intelligent as they are, as smart and wise, and they're looked up to, aren't they? They're looked up to in the world as the smartest men who came up with these wonderful theories. God is going to make their so-called wisdom look very, very foolish. He made Nebuchadnezzar's gods look very foolish. <clears throat> For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, by their own philosophy, by their thinking, by their theories, they couldn't know God. Couldn't find God by their wisdom and their thinking. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I mean, understand what he's saying here. You have all these men who are so intelligent with IQs off the chart, and they can't figure it out, but then he have somebody stand up and just speak and preach, and people's minds will open to the truth. And it doesn't have to be anybody smart. Look at who he called his apostles. Fishermen, tax collectors. These aren't necessarily known in the world as the bright guys, are they? No. You drive a truck or fish or do things like that because you're not the bright of the world. If you're the bright of the world, you write books with theories of evolution. You teach in universities and so on and so forth. So God called fishermen, and tax collectors to preach Christ. For the Jews require a sign. Oh, you've got to show me a big sign, say the Jews. Otherwise, I won't believe it. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. All the Greek philosophers, they have to get together in a big circle, and they have to think and bounce ideas off of each other. And by being smart, they're going to come up with all the answers. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. 
and all their think tanks, they couldn't figure it out. But to them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. If you could catch God, if he had one, in his most foolish moments, he's going to be far above the very wisest moment that man ever had. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's not saying here that he has weakness, but if he had weakness, it would be stronger than the strongest man. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. You would think that, you know, just from a human standpoint, that if God wanted to build a people on earth for himself, he would look down and he would select the smartest, the wisest, the most educated, the most moral, the strongest, highest character people that were on earth, and he'd gather them all together and say, boy, I'm going to make me something now because I've got the best, the brightest that there is on earth, and this will really work. Okay? Wouldn't he? I mean, if you were going to do something nice, wouldn't you want to get in the leading experts from every field in order to build something? <clears throat> but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So you have men on this earth that are powerful, they're mighty, they're strong, they're intelligent, they're bold. They can think circles around us. They're just so much smarter. They can do things that you and I cannot even begin to think to do. Base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen, yes, and things which are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, Nebuchadnezzar gloried in his greatness and his power, and God turned him out like a cow for seven years and just let him eat grass. And all his wisdom, all his intelligence, his knowledge was gone. He thought like a cow, ate like a cow, and slept like a cow. And his fingernails grew out longer than any of you can grow. And he looked really dumb out there. And he was. Now, isn't it interesting to contrast this, that God did this to Nebuchadnezzar to show that he can abase and to show that he is God and that he puts over the nations the basest of men. Now, when he himself chooses to do something, he takes the basest of men himself. He, if you look at the church overall, the people that were called in the Worldwide Church of God over the years, <clears throat> if you go down this line, 
and we sing it pretty regularly, we're the foolish, the trailer trash. Uh, we're the weak, don't have great power and control over ourselves when it comes to food and drink and sex and cigarettes and, you know, drugs and you name it. God has chosen the weak. And the base things of the world, those which weren't great, weren't mighty, weren't powerful, just at best average, nothing above that, except for a very few. So there, there's your out, you know, if you're one of those. But he said for the most part, nah, he just took the dregs of society. He went to the trailer parks mostly, and that's where he got his people. I remember driving down a street somewhere in South Florida at one time, and we were looking for an address for a prospective member. Got a letter from Pasadena, said, go see this person. Driving down the street, nice, lovely homes along there, beautiful places. And uh, my assistant said, uh, well, we're getting close. And I says, no, not yet, not yet. Keep driving. Well, we're getting pretty close. I said, not yet. Went out of the block, and here were these run-down places. Looked like they were 50 years old, and termites had already been working on them, and uh, kind of falling apart neighborhood. And I says, now, check that address again. We're getting close. How did I know? Well, generally, because I'd been visiting a lot of new, new prospective members, and they're living in old houses and in trailer houses and you know, they, they weren't the upscale. It never took us to the beach. They took us back the other direction for the most part. Because that's just what God has done. And he has a purpose in that. We shouldn't be discouraged by it. We should be encouraged because of the purpose here. Now what he is doing, he's showing he can abase the mighty with Nebuchadnezzar. And he's showing that he can take those that are already base and weak and foolish and stupid and not, don't amount to anything, and he can turn them around. He is incredible both directions. He can take anything that looks powerful and make it into nothing, and he can take that which is nothing and make it into something. He can go both ways with it. These is God chosen, yes, and things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now the beauty of this is God took us who were nothing, and we have nothing to glory about, do we? We have nothing to be proud about. I don't know why we are, except it's just human nature. Some of the proudest people are people who have nothing to be proud of. Have you ever noticed that? meet somebody and boy their pride and ego and vanity just sticks out all over the place and you think what are you so proud of there's nothing there to be proud of that's us but of him are you in Christ who of God is made to us wisdom and righteousness sanctification and redemption so Christ Emmanuel has made has given us opportunity redeemed us from this world, sanctified us, set us apart, and is preparing to redeem us forever, eternally. That according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the eternal. 
So if there's anything we can glory in, not be proud of, but glory in, it would be that we know God and that he can transform us and make us into something. We don't have any presidents or kings or rulers or anybody like that here, do we? No. We've got carpenters and carpet layers and tile layers and bee people and uh, insect people and, you know, we might have had a few that were middle class instead of low class, but we don't have anybody as great. I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. He didn't come as a great orator. In fact, God had left him with a speech impediment, apparently, and an eye ailment. So that he was weak in presence, and God did that on purpose. Now, of all the ones that God called, Paul was probably the smartest, the most intellectual, the best trained. So the tax collectors and the fishermen were in good health. But Paul, who might, if any of them had had an opportunity to brag about his background, this training under Gamaliel and so on, uh, he would have been the one, and God left him with a problem that made him hard to look at and hard to listen to from what we read in the Scriptures. And he said later himself that all those pedigrees that he had, he counted as nothing but dung. That's that smelly stuff on the ground. That was all the value it had to it. The cross of Christ was what was important. For I determined not to know anything among you save Christ and him crucified. I wasn't going to show off my expertise and my great knowledge in other areas. That's all that really counts. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He had his insecurities, and he also trembled at God's word, having been struck down and made blind. And my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit of God and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Maybe we're not speaking with great power in terms of the power of things that God is doing at the moment. We can read the things that God did in Paul's and Peter's day, very powerful things. And we can project and see the prophecies of the powerful things he is about to do. So even though we may not show at the moment the great power of God in mighty acts, they are coming soon to God's people. And we can look at those and we can project forward into them But see, that requires faith. He wants us to learn to live and walk by faith, not by miracles. Miracles and signs are for unbelievers. Faith is for believers. If you need mighty signs and wonders, then you are weak. If you learn to walk according to God's will and ways and his promises, knowing that they will someday come true, then you are walking by faith. And you do not need miracles. You do not need great signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are fine, and there will be some. 
for those who walk in faith and show that they believe God in spite of lack of those things and will do his will anyway. And eventually, those promises will be fulfilled. But with faith, it is impossible to please him. And he will not find much faith when he comes to this earth. It is one of the top three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love, of course, but faith is right behind it. Because without faith in God, you can't have the love of God. They all three go right together. You have no hope either. So no, we don't see a lot of answers quite yet, do we? And we see a broken church. But we're in a period of time when God wants us to learn to walk in faith when we can see no answers. We can read of the answers. We can project forward to them. But how many people on this earth are willing to walk forward in faith not yet seeing the promises, seeing them far off in their mind, but not right now? Some people will give God a try. Well, I'll try this for a week, a month, a year, three years, five years, or whatever, and if I don't get all the blessings of God, then that didn't work. They'll throw God's word aside because they only give him so long to do the things he says he will do and they will discard his word, his promises, and go a different direction. How long did Joseph sit in prison? How long did Israel wander in the promise, I mean, the, uh, in the desert? How long did James Peter John, Paul, wait and not see the fulfillment of the promises Christ had made. Does that mean those promises won't be fulfilled? Not a bit. They're going to be. But they had to learn to walk in faith. You see, we may not be real smart. We may not be the bright of the world. We might not be mighty and noble. But if we, through the Spirit of God, can learn to wait and trust Him in faith, and live according to his ways while we walk in faith, we will be rewarded. But we've got to learn these lessons first. So he is able to abase the mighty and the noble whenever he decides. It takes time to take that which is already base and weak and foolish and transform it into something that is mighty and powerful and strong and faithful and full of love and the fruits of God's Spirit. That takes more time. God crushed Nebuchadnezzar down in that hour. Boom, just like that, turned him into a cow. How fast is he turning you into God by comparison? You see, he could crush that power that was there, but it takes time to change foolishness, stupidity, ignorance, baseness, and weakness. It takes time to change that. Now, he could, all, he could just simply give us power to heal. He could give us power to create wealth. He could give us power to have a happy, peaceful mind, maybe. But it wouldn't be us. It wouldn't be real. And you know what? 
If we didn't have the character to go with it, we'd misuse it and abuse it, wouldn't we? Why did Simon Magus want the power the apostles had for himself? He wanted to start an empire. Eventually he started the Catholic Church. Shows what his goal and purpose was. He would have misused it. So Peter told him, go to hell with your money. We don't want it. That's not what we're here about. He's chosen us to confound the wives of the world. That your faith, see, he goes right to that, verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are mature, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world to our glory. It's a mystery. The resurrection, Paul spoke of in the same book, chapter 15. The mystery of life eternal, <clears throat> which none of the princes of this world knew, or had they known it, <clears throat> they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And most religions today don't understand that we're to become God. They don't grasp that at all. That we're to be God as God is God. That is the truth, the bedrock truth that Herbert Armstrong preached to us. Maybe he didn't have some things right, but he had that right. We're to become like God. Kind begets kind. and We have to be transformed to God before we can become the bride of Christ. He is not going to marry an inferior form of life, if you will. And we are right now quite inferior to it. I'm not going to go there. Any more than you'd marry a cow or a horse or a pig or a parrot. Christ is not going to marry something less than he is. Not going to do it. <clears throat> Take that as a challenge, if you will. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. By philosophy, by thinking, by brightness, by study, man, in his wildest imagination, cannot begin to understand what God has for us. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knows no man but by the Spirit of God. We have a certain intelligence because of the spirit in man that cows and horses don't have. But even with that, we can't understand anything without the Spirit of God. That's why when you go to friends or relatives and you try to explain these things to them, it's like you're talking a totally different language. They don't get it at all. Even the religious ones, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Church of Christ, the Catholics, the Evangelicals, they don't get it at all. In fact, they're some of the ones that get the most irate about it, aren't they? They're the ones that will argue the most. They don't understand. They can't. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual 
But the natural man, I preach this on trumpets, the natural, normal, average person receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can, can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual understands, judges, discerns all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. <clears throat> for who has known the mind of the Eternal, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Once his Holy Spirit starts enacting with our mind, and our mind reacts to his spirit, we begin to understand the spiritual things of God. The mind opens up. One of the best analogies that I have come across that, that I've used several times is with people is that Herbert Armstrong wrote these little bitty booklets, about eight pages, and they were only a quarter of a sheet at that, and entitled, Why Were You Born?, what kind of faith is required for salvation, and things of that nature. And people would pick those booklets up because God's Spirit had acted on their mind. And they would read, Why Were You Born? and understand with eight or ten little old quarter pages that they were born to become God. And now we have Mystery of the Ages, which is a huge book, which doesn't say anything but what that booklet said. It just gives a lot more detail, a lot more background, a lot more understanding, and it puts it in a simple way that you'd think anybody that read that book would certainly understand it. And Philadelphia Church sends them out by the thousands or tens of thousands. People read it, nothing happens. Because God is not working with that mind, not opening it, and they can't understand it. They disagree, won't go along with it. The only difference there is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God can open your mind in eight pages, just like that. Or if the Spirit of God is not there, you can read the complete explanation and not get it at all. So it's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of God's Spirit. Now, he lays this background, and he said, Brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. And then he goes on and shows that there's strife and fighting and division and sins and gets into incest even and fornication and adultery and all kinds of things back in here that were still going on in the Corinthian church. Now, we can look at ourselves and say, hey, we've been called of God, and yet here we still have lots of problems. But God is setting this whole thing up. He's setting the whole thing up. This is going to be the battle of the titans just ahead of us between God and Satan. Now, there's been a titanic battle in the past. Satan lost it and was cast to the earth. But he's going to make one last try. Now, he's gathering his people right now. And he is going to form a government that he believes will rule the world. And what is he doing? He's picking the elite, the illumined ones, the Illuminati, the special, the most intelligent among men. And he's assembling them in bank conference rooms and wherever 
government conference rooms, and he is using them to try to put together a world-ruling empire with the best minds, the smartest, sharpest people. And he's going to make peasants out of the rest of us, and he's going to have this elite ruling class that can rule the rest of the world, and they'll tell us that it will bring peace and prosperity and joy and love and all the fruits of the Spirit. Now, isn't it really the fruits of the Spirit that basically all people want? I mean, if you think about it, it doesn't matter who you are or what continent you're from, you'd like to have love, you'd like to have joy, you'd love to have peace, patience. People the world over wish they had patience. All those things of God that are attributes of His Spirit is what people want to have. It's just they don't like the process. They don't like to do the things that will bring those qualities. They have their own way of going about it. So when this new world order under Satan promises the world, what are they going to promise? They're going to promise peace, plenty, prosperity. They're going to promise that they can get rid of all disease and affliction and give you health and that their brilliant scientists will bring, be able to clone these animals and clone us and grow new body parts. So if we start getting a weak heart or lung or whatever it is, or brain, we'll be able to take one out of our clone and put it in us. And if anything starts to wear out, get a bad knee, bad elbow, bad neck, they'll just take it out of your clone and put it in you. And and we'll have these modular body parts available, and they can fix us and we can live forever. They're trying to promise us immortality after they kill 90% of us and just deal with what's left. You know, they don't tell you all that, but they are promising a wonderful world tomorrow with these smart scientists and politicians and military people that they can bring the fruits of the Spirit of God through carnal means. We all love to see a child that is respectful and loving and obedient, spirited, and yet, and the world wants that. So they get their smartest, educated minds to try to figure out how to make a child that way. And they want to leave any child behind and they got all these programs. And what do we got? Do we have decent, respectful, loving, uh, controlled children? No, we've got little pirates, which God said we would have. Women, children will be your oppressors, and women rule over you. That's all we got in our society today. We wanted love and joy and peace and respect and good kids. We wind up with these rebellious little tyrants. So we wanted this, but we didn't want to use the methods that God put in here. We want to use our own methods that we, through our wisdom and great thinking, can come up with that's going to produce these kids that are that way. It isn't working. Now, Satan is taking the smartest, brightest, most educated people on earth 
to usher in his millennium. On the other side, Christ is taking the weakest, foolish, most foolish, basest people he can find, basically, and he is planning on transforming them into the rulers and the leaders of the world. And he will use them to produce love, joy, peace, patience, all the fruit, faith of his spirit. It's going to be quite a contrast. Satan's going to get his all built up. It's going to be made with feet of iron and miry clay. It's going to have some steel in there, but it's going to have a bunch of clay that's slimy and slick. And it's going to stand up and say, I'm going to rule the world and bring all the things that the world ever wanted. And it's going to fall on its behind because it has a lot of clay mixed with its iron. Now, God is going to take us, who are nothing, and he is through the transformation by his Spirit going to turn us into mighty, noble kings and priests who will rule the earth for a thousand years with the fruit of the Spirit of God. That's what he's going to do. Now, this day, we're fasting. And doesn't it seem strange in a way when you think, well, this day pictures my wedding day. You don't fast on your wedding day. You might be so excited you forget to eat, but, I mean, they have food, and you have a party afterward, and a dance, and whatever. So why do we fast? And people have trouble understanding, I think, how this day could picture the wedding of Christ and his bride, and yet you fast on it. Well, how does the bride prepare herself to marry the meekest, humblest, most serving, loving individual, along with his father, that has ever lived? Do we do it by being proud and egocentric and proud of our beauty and our figure and our loveliness and our whatever it is that brides think they have to give? To their husband. Most of them have already given it away in this age anyway. But we fast because we need to become meek and humble and loving and patient and serving and sinless like he is. Kind begets kind, and marriage begets those that are the same. So we fast to humble ourselves and to tremble at his word, and to become contrite. And I'll tell you that this day also, this day of fasting and affliction, will be turned around and become a feast of joy at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will no longer need to fast. They even said, why do my disciples fast? Or not fast? Well, they don't. I'm with them. When I go away, then they're going to fast. They want to be with me, and they want to have me accept them. And he says he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So if we have pride and vanity and ego, it has to go away in order to become the bride of Christ. In our society, we've got it all backwards. It's all upside down when it comes to marriage. 
not the way it was done in the Bible. It's not going to be the way it's done with Christ and his bride, the way we do it. In our society, the bride and her family are in charge of everything, and they do all the dresses and all the cakes and all of this and all of that, and are in charge of everything. Is that the way it was with Rebecca and Isaac? No. No, she agreed to come to his family. Her family didn't even come to the wedding, apparently. Maybe they did, I don't know. Doesn't say it if they did. But she agreed to go back with that man and become Isaac's wife. And in this situation, God the Father and the bridegroom, Christ, are doing, making all the preparations. They're in charge of the wedding. Are we in charge of it? No. We don't know what they're going to serve. We don't know where it's going to happen. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. He has all those answers, doesn't he? Satan's way and this world's way has it all backward. The bride's, or the, the groom's family should be the one in charge of the wedding should be in charge of making the arrangements. What is our position? Let's understand this. What is our position in this marriage of the ages? Our position is to humble ourselves, prepare ourselves, put on wedding garments of righteousness, and to learn to be submissive to our husband. To be ready to serve and give to him and help him fulfill his mission in life, which will be to rule the world in peace for a thousand years. We will be kings and priests, yes. We will also be the bride, the mother of all those children, and we will work under him to point the world to the Father and to our, bride, our, to our bridegroom. That will be our job. Our job right now is to put on the wedding clothes of righteousness, to dress ourselves properly, to take that which was ugly and dirty and weak and base and foolish and turn it into something that is mighty and noble and obedient and humble and meek and serving and giving and loving, and to begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit through obedience and walking in the Spirit instead of walking according to the works of the flesh. The world is trying to produce a peaceful millennium through the works of the flesh, and they're going through using the wrong formula, and they're going to fall on their behind. But God is taking that which was living by the works of the flesh and is going to transform it into those who walk in the Spirit, and then they will be prepared to confound the wise and the mighty of this world who with all their education, all their thinking, all their money, all their wealth, and everything else, couldn't make it last more than three and a half years. Total. And that was a time of confusion. I'm going to boil this down just a little bit more here, and then we'll be done. According to Daniel 8, If I'm looking at it right, I think it's talking about this country. The Western would have been what was referred to then as the Greek Empire, but we are the Western Empire of today. 
So it translates to us. Have already gone in and broken the horn of Iraq. I believe we will soon go in and break the horn of Iran. And it describes us as a goat that doesn't touch the ground. We go in with airplanes. But it says soon after that, we're going to have our horn broken, and our country is going to be divided into four parts. And that there will be a time of leadership and rulership there for a while under that government. And at the end of their reign, toward the end of their power, their rule over this country, they will come against the church, and they will set up the abomination of desolation, and we'll have to flee for our very lives. But the point that I want to come to here is this. There appears to be a time, a period of time, perhaps a few years, from the time that this country is taken captive and destroyed and has four governors put over it, divided into four pieces. There appears to be a period of time in there where this country is ruled by that before the tribulation starts. Because remember, the tribulation starts when the, the abomination of desolation is set up. And from that time forward, you have three and a half years of great tribulation. But there's a time between the fall of this country when it is divided up and that setting up of the abomination of desolation. And, it, and Daniel speaks of it. Let me read that part of it, Daniel 8. Instead of just trying to say it. Uh, verse 22. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. The power of this nation is going to be destroyed, and you're going to have four governors once it's divided up and its sovereignty destroyed. And in the latter time of their kingdom, so there's a period of time in there when they rule this nation, those four governors. And it is in the latter time of their rule when the transgressors are come to the full, when the power of the Gentiles is there and their world-ruling empire has taken hold, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark or occult sentences shall stand up and his power shall be mighty and he'll destroy the mighty and the holy people and so on. So it appears there is a period perhaps of a few years between the destruction of this country and the time that the abomination is set up and we have to flee from the villages without walls that will be built during that time. To me, it is interesting that God would take a 10% remnant of his church and set it in a place where he says, I will become a wall of fire around it, a covert from the heat, so we can grow things. It'll be like a Garden of Eden in the Garden of God. And while the world is destroying the great whore, America, and putting their kingdom together and getting it in place to rule the world and set up its millennium and bring peace, and in so doing, kill 90% of the population as they have projected in their back rooms, that's how you make peace, you know. That's how you make enough water for everybody. You don't make more water, you just kill people. Then there's more water to go around. You don't have enough power, energy sources, kill people, then you don't need as many. That's the way they think. But while they're getting this all set up, using the carnal, human, and satanic works of the flesh to establish it, 
God is going to be establishing a small microcosm of the millennium in his church with a few of his people. They will live in peace, because he said in this place I will bring peace, Haggai 2.9. They will live in peace, they will live in prosperity, they will live in love, joy, peace, happiness, patience, faith. They'll have everything they need, and life will be beautiful. And it will be done behind a wall of fire that man cannot penetrate while man is out there setting up with ruthless methods his kingdom. The final witness against the world will not be made until God shows the world a different way. He will not destroy it until he says, okay, here's the way it should be, and here are the methods that we have to use. These people are not lying, they are not cheating, they are not stealing, they are not committing fornication or adultery, they are not listening to abominable music, they are not doing a lot of things that the world currently is doing. A light should begin to come on, brethren, that this world is not living in a godly way, and nearly everything that it does is ungodly and is according to the works of the flesh. And it will not produce love, joy, and peace. Before God condemns the world with three and a half years of preaching and turning their blood to their water to blood and plagues and all those things, he is going to show them a different model first. And we have opportunity to be part of that model. But you can look around this world and see that the works of the flesh produce misery, unhappiness, murder, rape, riot, disease, poverty. This world has been living by the works of the flesh, the way of the flesh, the natural man, all these years. And look at what we have around us. Send your kids to school, they might get shot. They might get raped. They get, might get molested by teachers. It's a sick, evil, rotten world. And we have been given opportunity today to put on the garments of righteousness, to walk in the Spirit, to be transformed away from the works of the flesh, which we, as the weak and the base and the foolish, had followed in the past, and to walk the ways of God. And if we will do so, we will be the light of the world, and we will be putting on the wedding garments and preparing to marry Christ when he returns. And he will then destroy all the works of the flesh and of Satan and of the kingdom that they are currently trying to set up. A lot of them have lofty ideals. Some of them really think they can bring a thousand-year millennium of peace on this earth using their methods. Just as some of those who say, I can produce an intelligent, educated, obedient, respectful child using these methods. Follow my whatever the latest book is, and that's the kind of child you'll have, and it never turns out that way. 
But the one that wrote the book was sincere about it. I suppose the one that my one of my sons and his wife read, they were going to train their potty train their child by what a month or six weeks old. And this book had a theory. I mean, these were smart people that could write books. That if you would lay that child naked on your naked chest, and somehow the symbiotic relationship, I don't know, even know all the theory at this point, would just dry up his bowels and his little pee-pee, and he would become potty trained in six weeks laying on your chest. I don't remember all of how, but they tried it. And they got wet and stinky. <laughs> and it didn't work. And they soon abandoned it. And having a background in the truth, they even began actually paddling their children again, and they're getting better. The world wants to do it their way. Satan wants to do it his way. And they really are sincere about it. They're not necessarily evil in their motives. Some are. But not all of them are. They really believe that their theory is going to work. Those scientists who are working night and day in those labs thinking they can produce a new heart and a new liver and a new whatever for you are sincere about it. They think they can. And they can. God's going to stop it. It's the works of the flesh. We have opportunity here through the Spirit of God to transform into a marvelous bride of Christ who is love and joy and peace, patience and faith and long-suffering. That's what we're called to do. We're here to confound the wise and the mighty. And I'm telling you that God has a plan right here at the end where he is going to actually do that and set up a microcosm of the millennium so that the world can see it before it ever comes. Just a small view of it. That's something we never grasped before until we began to understand that the job of the end-time church is to build a latter temple as glory will exceed that which we knew in the past and worldwide. And that God has provided the time and the place and the opportunity for us to set an example for this world and live a small, short millennium, if you will, as an example. And then... When this world denies that and turns against it and comes to destroy it because it is not according to their fleshly model, then God is going to unleash the plagues and the blood and all the things that came on Egypt on this world. But he's going to give opportunity first. Just as he gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months, to think about it. And at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar looked around and said, boy, I have built a wonderful kingdom. I am great. All right, eat grass. You and I have an opportunity before this little bubble inside a wall of fire is developed by God to get ourselves ready to be part of it and to be an example to this world. Not to be like the world, not to think like, act like, sing like, entertain like the world, but to be totally different from the world. 
Now, does this help the light come on of why God says, get out of Babylon? He has a special purpose for us. He has a special purpose to show us the absolute contrast of what the world is and what it produces and what living His way will produce. But we are yet carnal. We still do not yet walk in the Spirit as much as we should, and we still go according to the works of the flesh. So we have a period of time to change that and begin to truly walk in the Spirit, to make some changes so that God can see the difference between the world and us. And then he will grant peace and prosperity and all those things that he has promised us. But we have to learn to walk in faith, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, before that can happen. We can't look, smell, act, think, or be like the world in any way. We have to get away from that. What did Christ say? I have overcome the world. He didn't sin. He didn't think like they thought. He overcame it. It did not influence him. He did not talk like them. Tell their jokes. Tell their stories. Laugh at the things they laugh at. He was not sucked in by this world's way. And that's what he tells us we have to do. That's why we have to fast on atonement, to humble ourselves, to prepare ourselves, to be the very bride of Christ. And once we get it done, he's going to reveal when and where and why and how and what's on the menu. And we'll be submissive and loving toward our husband the great God of the universe under his Father. That's what this day is really all about. It's transforming ourselves to become like Christ so that we can rule the world in peace and love and joy and happiness. That's what's coming. You and I have a very excellent opportunity to be a part of that if we will respond and walk in the Spirit.